Have you ever been in such a low place in your life that you begged your partner to leave you? Have you ever felt helpless with the ongoing struggle of trying to lose weight? And what about the anxiety and depression that becomes overwhelming? Today, I never ever give up hope. Coach John is with me, and he is going to share his incredible story of how he won these battles. Stay tuned. Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Coach John is a weight loss coach and emotional eating expert who has lost, you ready for this, 100 pounds. From nanotechnology researcher to Navy marine engineer to globe-trotting nomad, Coach John spent most of his life running from his true calling until... One question changed his life. Well, John, welcome, and this sounds exciting. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope, which you did not. (laughs) I I sure didn't, you know. And uh, yeah, I I love the work that you're doing here, so it's a pleasure to be on. So, John, let's start with your backstory of your personal struggles with PTSD, trauma, obesity, and mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So, Going back to about 2011, so my wife and I had sp- were uh, halfway through kind of a three-year traveling around the world globetrotting trip that we had. We never really expected we were going to go for three years. We just we kind of just left on a whim. Um, I, I took a leave of absence from the Navy, and and we decided to just pack up our lives and and because we'd saved up some money and we thought well we could either buy a house or we could travel the world and we said well you know most people wait until they're old to travel the world <laughs> That's let's right. Uh, right let's try this when we're young and so um and thus began this this crazy kind of globetrotting adventure that we took off on in that time we were living in Mexico and we met a fellow from South Africa and so we were both we were both teaching English in in Mexico he ended up coming to meet us again in Poland, where we ended up living. Yeah. And then he, he invited us to come down to South Africa. To he, His family had been running a non-for-profit uh, organization down there working with underprivileged youth. And he thought, well, you're both teachers. We could use, we're looking for a couple of new teachers. So why not come down and be, <coughs> pardon me, why not come down and be a part of the program? We ended up going down to South Africa in uh, August of 2011. Well, it was the end of July 2011. And we began uh, teaching for this program. And when we were out on this this uh, nature reserve, uh, one night 
I was headed back to the instructor's cabin, which is kind of nestled away in the in the bush, in the trees, and we're out kind of out in the middle of nowhere. I go back to this cabin, and uh, it's nighttime, it's dark, and I'm kind of by myself, and I'm just whistling a tune, you know, wearing flip-flops and sweatpants and, you know, in, in a great old mood because we're, we're really loving the work we're doing, connecting with our students and so on, and the cabin door was still AJR. When I opened the door, there was three men inside there, and they were seated around the table drinking uh, rooibos tea, which is a type of tea they drink in South Africa, and eating rusks, which is kind of a hard biscuit. I didn't see the fourth guy. He was outside the building. I at first didn't, like my, my first instinct wasn't there's something wrong with this. My first question was, oh, maybe there's something wrong with the cabin and they've just like showed up to fix, <laughs> you, you know, uh-huh. to fix something. I, was like, I wasn't thinking there was, you know, th- these men were here to attack me or something like that. And then I got smashed across the head with a, a rock. Oh, my word. Yeah. And, you know, in that moment, now my brain's trying to figure out like what is what is going on. And it, it's it's quite well, I guess not, nothing really prepares us for this. You know, for, I was I was maybe a little bit of denial, like, no, this can't be happening. This isn't uh-huh, real. Uh-huh. You know, the, the image that sticks out in my mind the most was um, I was wearing like a collared kind of golf shirt. This this guy, he grabbed the sort of the scruff of that shirt. I remember him like looking into my eyes and smiling and then saying, shh, as he swings this rocket at, at my head. Oh, and just, my Lord smash hits me across the head again with this now i'm falling to the ground i'm concussed and i'm bleeding you know and i you know i don't really know what's going on and of course the other men by this time had like jumped out of the cabin and and they'd piled on and started you know beating on me and and then kicking and stomping me and you know i was i was at this point i'm you know screaming for help but nobody was hearing me because all my my wife and all the students and the other instructor they were they were in this building that was probably you know a couple hundred feet away Uh and they're all having a grand old time, making all kinds of noise and just eating dinner like nothing's happening while I'm getting beaten, um, screaming for my life. I, I managed to somehow fight my way to my feet. I don't know where the strength came from, but I managed to uh-huh. fight my way to my feet. I, I had this this overwhelming urge, like, I'm going to die if I stay here. Uh-huh. And, I can't, and I can't die tonight. I managed to fight my way to my, to my feet and sort of break free from them. And I kind of stumbled, ran over to the building and for some reason they didn't pursue me they could have very easily pursued me and i don't know why they didn't maybe call it god somehow intervened and uh, you know i got to the building and you know uh, i'm i stumble in there and my face is covered in blood and i'm bruised and beaten and you know i've I've been attacked and i don't know how many men are out there and so on and chaos kind of ensued and and ultimately we end up sort of being trapped in this building for 45 minutes with these men trying to break down the doors they were swinging shovels at it and things and before the the police eventually showed up you know the police really didn't care that's something that we, we kind of don't, we don't often think about in, uh-huh. in say, growing up in a place like Canada. But the police were like, oh, nobody died. Okay, cool. We're leaving now. My wife was like, no, you're not. They're still out there. <laughs> and <laughs> so you're not leaving until every one of us is out of here. You guys have guns. We don't. And so thankfully my wife was, you know, really strong in this, this, right. this event or this incident, you know, and, and obviously there's more details, but for the sake of time, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that part of the incident and just say, so that was the incident that really sparked, you know, this, this oh. binge eating and this food addiction, and oh this trauma. Word. And, and it wasn't that I deliberately set out to, to do this. It was, I didn't know how to, how to cope with it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Isn't that interesting? That and, and I know that there, you found that trigger point, right? And yeah. many other people have not. Uh, for me, like I said, it wasn't as though I, I deliberately started eating. It wasn't a conscious decision to start eating food to cope with my, the emotions because there would be flashbacks and uh-huh, there would just be uh-huh. 
ran like random like blinding emotions that I that I didn't understand and it was like I, I dissociated and I was operating kind of like in denial and in some sort of just trapped traumatized survival mode where I was just functioning and because in my eyes even though I was rapidly gaining weight uh, in in my mind I was still an athlete oh you know? my goodness yes interesting yeah and and so it's just because a lot of people would, would would look at this from the outside not having been through it and go well didn't you didn't you notice the weight gain? And I said, well, it's it's kind of hard to explain, except if you've been through trauma. And this this I, I was really dissociating from my own body and like unaware of of kind of what was happening until we we eventually there were more incidents that took place in the time that we lived in South Africa, and eventually we just had to leave. Um, we figured we were on the verge of like a nervous breakdown or or huh. reacting violently towards someone and doing something that we regret. And so we thought, well, we've got to get out of here because one way or another, something even worse is going to happen. And so we ultimately ended up going back to Australia. Um, and that was that was kind of where this, maybe this healing journey started and um, what went wrong. How, do, how did we even get here? I remember I was about 330 pounds at that point. So I'd gained about 120 pounds over like a six-month span. Wow. It was something. I say, how were you feeling about yourself at that point? Ooh, I really hated who I'd become. You know, what's interesting is I look back and I think about maybe certain tendencies that maybe I would have had, but I never really thought much about them kind of mm-hmm. growing up because I was kind of just going through life. But going through something like trauma really like awakened them in a, a powerfully different way. I didn't know how to deal with this dramatically changed, much bigger body of mine. I just felt this horrible sense of shame for who I'd become. Uh-huh, I mean, uh-huh. everything was difficult. You think just trying to tie your shoes or go to the bathroom or walk up a flight of stairs, like everyday life huh. was now just so incredibly difficult. I bet you I, dealt with anger at this point too. Oh, did I ever? <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah. Now, I was I suppressed a lot of it because what's interesting is in all of this, there's, of course, there's a part of my brain that goes like, this isn't you. But there were there would be like these, like sort of come out of nowhere, like blinding flashes of rage, and I wouldn't really know what would trigger it, but I would want to respond like oh, very, wow. like very violently, and and I you know I look back and in hindsight like I was, I was lashing out at something because like in 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 this incident you know I've been jumped by four guys at night like completely caught off guard like everything they didn't know me everything about the situation right. was unjust and so i think this was my brain like trying to trying to take back something it felt had been taken from me or trying to find expression for the unjustness of of what had happened to me but, uh, i would often use food to numb that mm-hmm. that was that was one of the ways that i kind of got through that but was food the choice over let's say alcohol or some other kind of behavior or was mm-hmm. that did you think that you were just drawn to that because that was your personality or? I think because it was more socially acceptable. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, yeah. I I didn't have too much of a relationship with alcohol and I'd occasionally dabbled in a few drugs here or there. Very minor, like as a, just as a dumb teenager uh-huh, kind uh-huh. of thing. Because of the time I'd spent in the Navy, I had already seen kind of the what can happen when people drink in sort of a not very healthy way and how it affects relationships. And so interestingly, by this point in time in my life, I'd kind of put alcohol aside as, as something I didn't really consume. Okay. So food just was natural because, you know, food is often how we show hospitality. Maybe we're invited to someone's house and, oh, here's a dessert. Oh, you really like that. Maybe you should have some more. And of course, <laughs> I would tell them how much I appreciate it. And people didn't realize, of course, that they're enabling my behaviors. Of and you, you go to a social event and, of course, I'm encouraging people to eat because 
I, I was, you know, beginning to beginning to recognize my eating behaviors are a little bit out of control, but I didn't, I didn't even know why or what to do at that point. There, there came a point uh, where we went, um, my brother lives in Turkey actually. And so we went back to visit him. This is probably about nine or 10 months after the incident had happened. And one night I couldn't sleep and I was thinking, I'm just so tired of being angry. So I want to, I want to oh. forgive these men. And, and it sounds like easy, like, okay, I forgive you and, and sure. done. <laughs> but you know, I think it's much more of a process than that. When you say it's a process, but also you have to make the decision first, right? Yes. Yeah. And I, I don't know where it came to me, but I, I just realized if I can forgive these men, then they don't have the power to make me angry anymore. Right. Right. Because I, obviously, I never saw them again. They were three out of the four were eventually caught, and and. The, the South African police actually reached out and asked me to come back for the court case, but I really just couldn't bring myself to go back there at that time. I just wasn't in the mental, the emotional state to, to do it. Uh -huh. um, these men had actually murdered a guy the night before that they attacked me and they beat him to death. And so that was their intention again. So I, I thought, okay, well, how do I, how do I forgive these men? Like, what is it, you know, what does it actually look like? So I, I got curious and I thought, okay, what must have happened to these men? Because I thought, well, I wonder if they were like, grew up in different circumstances, they would behave differently in the world. It's not to like excuse their behaviors, but I started just kind of trying to really, I guess, cultivate a sense of compassion for them. Interesting. And, and maybe I didn't even realize like that's kind of what I was doing, but I was just trying to make sense of it, I think. And I thought if I could, if I could make sense of this and why they might do something like this, because really it wasn't about me, Jonathan, like they didn't know me. And I don't know that maybe it was entirely random, like it had to do with my skin color, but, um, they didn't know me the person. And so I right. thought, well, if I could, if I could just understand why they, they would do something like this, then maybe I could start to forgive them. Each time the kind of the anger would come up and I would start living, you know, after, after being through trauma, there's the flashbacks and you start reliving uh -huh. if, if I knew this and I would have done this and to start trying to rewrite the story of what happened in our brain. And, and maybe that's another coping mechanism. I would try to cultivate this, the sense of compassion for them and think about like, <clears throat> pardon me, what, what happened to them? And again, not to excuse their behaviors, but say, if I could at least understand why they were, you know, what got them to the place in life where this is what they were doing to people, then then maybe I could forgive them. And I think that was the, maybe the first step kind of on my on my healing journey. And so, I, I, you know, I was able to come to a place of forgiveness. Probably, it probably took six, seven months, even even that stage. Then, then kind of the next stage of struggle began because I had this very now disordered relationship with food disordered relationship with my body. It, it, was, it might sound strange to say this, but it was almost easier to forgive the men who tried to kill me than to forgive myself for oh, how... Oh, I can understand. Everybody, yeah. everybody will relate to that, I think, on some level. Yeah. So now I've got this disordered relationship to self and, and my wife. And we've been together now for 17 years and she is just the most wonderful, amazing woman and I love her with all of my heart. You know, I thought, you don't deserve to be with me. You deserve better than this. <laughs> you know, so this is the story I started like telling myself. And and my wife is from Australia and I live in Canada. We, we were living together in Canada. And I actually just kept trying to convince her. I'm like, just go back to Australia. Just, just go home. You don't, don't uh -huh. just give, give up, basically telling her to give up on me. <laughs> and, and I, in my damaged mind, I was thinking that this is, that would be what, what is best for her. Right. That it would just be better. She would be happier if she wasn't stuck with this obese, angry, frustrated guy like she's you know I, I felt like she's this wonderful beautiful woman and she just deserves to be with someone who can care for her the way that she you know 
and I can't do that right now. And so my response was to kind of try to push her away. And she saw but, that as a complete pity party. She, 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 <laughs> would, she wouldn't give up on me. Of course. <laughs> she's, she's stubborn. <laughs> and, you know, thankfully, like, she can see and could see, like, not only who I was and also what I'd been through. And she was, she was in a sense, traumatized. She wasn't attacked, but she saw the aftermath of the incident as well. And so she was, in one sense, traumatized by it as well. But on top of that, I think she she saw who like my potential and, and who she believed I could become. And so she was like, no, I'm not, I'm not leaving you. I'm not giving up on you. Don't say things like uh-huh. that. Then of course I started trying to try to lose weight. So I had this idea of like, okay, well, if I can, if I can just lose the weight, then, um, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll stop uh-huh. hating myself. Uh-huh. So then, then it starts the string of like diets and exercise plans no and things kidding. like this. You know, I actually, I joke that I've lost over 600 pounds and, and it's because I've lost and gained weight so many times. Uh-huh. And each, each sort of cycle as it would repeat would sort of heighten my despair. I didn't understand our biology in, in a sense at that time, because in my mind, I kept thinking, well, all I have to do is just lose the weight and then it'll be okay. Of course, the way that we're fearfully and wonderfully made you know, God made us so that we're very famine resilient. In other words, when uh-huh. our body makes yes. cells, we get to keep them for life. Now we can empty them and shrink them, but they're ours to keep for life. And I didn't understand this. And not only that, but we can regain weight probably four times faster than we can lose weight. Maybe I, would, I worked really, really hard and I've you know lost 50, 60 pounds. And then I would just in, in like a you know, maybe six, six week span or something, I could regain like 40 pounds because I just couldn't, re- re- couldn't, maintain that level of restriction and I would just kind of like blow up and go crazy again and just start attacking food and and then of course I would then the despair would set in again like oh my gosh what have I done I've undone all of my hard work here I am back here again like what is wrong with me and 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 it would just sort of perpetuate this cycle of like sort of self-hatred and and loathing I remember the first time I had a panic attack I mean again I didn't really realize what was happening and it was it was kind of in the middle of the night I woke up and and my heart was absolutely thumping, like it felt like it was going to burst out of my chest. And I didn't want to, didn't want to wake my wife. And of course, I don't want to tell her what's going on. And I go and I sit on the couch, and a part of my brain is screaming, you know, call nine one one. You're going to die. You're you're dying. Call nine one one. And the other part of my brain is like, no, like you're not in danger. There's no reason to do this. And so there's this confusion. It didn't occur to me in that moment that oh, you're having a panic attack. <laughs> and it's like a panic attack. And of course, in my mind, I thought something like anxiety was like weakness or frailty. I was like, this doesn't happen to me. You know, I'm trying to be a strong man or something like that, you know, a misplaced sense of masculinity. And uh, so I tried to hide from my wife that these things were happening. But of course, she's switched on. And, you know, she would she would like, you know, hug me and she goes, your heart It's like it's beating so fast. Um, and I, I would try to brush it off and kind of dismiss it like, oh, oh, you know, no, 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 you know, I just, just ran up the stairs or something like that. So it'll, you know, and so on. Eventually she was like, you need to, you need to get this checked out. Like there's something going on here. And probably the catalyst was in about 2017. So we're, we're talking about probably been struggling for about six years now. And, and the catalyst though, I think was I, I was purchasing some, some additional life insurance and I had to do, you know, they, they make you go through these tests to, to check sort of your health or whatever. Right. I was at that time about 295 pounds, you know, so I was down from my heaviest, but I was still 295 pounds and they couldn't get my blood pressure down and so on. And they put what's called a rider on my insurance policy. In other words, uh, I had to pay extra money for life insurance because I was at higher risk of dying. Of course. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and that was kind of like this wake up call. Like you have to change something. 
like and and whatever you're doing you know all your attempts like i i buried myself in supplement science like i'm a former nanotechnology uh, like science researcher so i buried myself in supplement science and and high level nutrition science and training and i was trying to find all the answers in all of this and i was completely ignoring what i think is is probably the most important part of all of this, which is again, relationship self, emotional health, mental health, the reasons why I do what I do. You know, why, why, why could I know one thing and do something completely destructive and opposite to what I know to be healthy? So, How many people don't ask themselves that same question? So this, this, um, struggle of trying to, trying to figure this answer out and, and, and getting, you know, getting more and more frustrated and so on. So in, in about mid 2017, I ended up hiring a coach and this wasn't the first coach I'd hired. And again, probably I thought I was hiring this guy with the, still on this idea of like, I just, I have to lose the weight. Like that's, that's what I need to be happy. And he, he took a different approach than I thought. Like I th- here, I think I'm hiring him to, you know, lose the weight and look good and maybe, <laughs> maybe develop a physique kind of similar to his because he was in pretty good shape. He took this very patient, compassionate, kind of curious approach to working with me. And he modeled for me what compassion really is. So it wasn't that he was enabling my binges and unhelpful behaviors, but, and he, but he wasn't judging me for them either. Wow. Right. He was, you know, I would go to him and be like, wow, I just, like I just ate an entire pizza in my car. Okay. Go ahead and give it to me with both barrels. Like I'm such an mm-hmm, idiot, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, just, just waiting for him because this is what I was doing to myself of course. inside my, in my own head, just brutally like beating myself up in, in my own head. <clears throat> and instead he would just get curious like, oh, that's interesting what was going on this week for you? This kind of this curious, like, let's start seeing if we can connect some dots. You know, there's again, probably similar to, to my wife, trying to push him away and convince him that I was just going to be a failure. For the first four months of working together, I really didn't lose any weight. And I was trying to convince him like, this isn't going to work. This isn't working. Like I'm such a failure. Why don't you just, <clears throat> why don't you just give up on me? And, and again, he wouldn't. And so this kind of brings us to this, this question I say that really changed my life. And, and I think this, what this points to is, is, a really experienced coach asking the right question at the right time when he felt like the timing of all of this was right. was correct. One point I was just, you know, just telling him how frustrated I was and, and just wanting to give up and all of this. And he stopped me and he said, Jonathan, I want to ask you a question. He said, if you make a list of all the things you love and value, how far down that list do I go before I see your name? So that question just like stopped me cold. I was... I was kind of stunned by this question because you know, it really is, as a man, I never thought a lot about mm-hmm. lo- loving and valuing myself. Like my, I, I thought self-love was like bubble baths and chocolate <laughs> candles and, you know, eating ice cream and watching rom-coms or something like that. You know, that was, I had this, again, distorted idea of what self-love was. And it was like, that's not for men. I'm, I'm not on the list. Like it wasn't that I was at the bottom of the list. It's like, I'm, I'm not on the list. Then, then, then it's like, well, how do you learn self-love when it's self, like I knew self-loathing, <laughs> I knew self-hating. How how do you learn self-love at like hmm. 35, 36 years old after like my entire and, and look, I've got wonderful parents. They've loved me. I've got a brother. You know, like I don't come from terrible family circumstances or anything, but it's like I, I look back now and I, I recognize like my mom really has always struggled with her relationship to self and to food. So there's probably that. And and my dad in a sense has as well and struggled with like emotional connection and so on and so forth. But they did the best they could and, and you know, they're, they're, they're loving parents and wonderful grandparents and so on. So now I, it's like, well, how do I learn self-love? And it started with something really simple. It started with um, brushing my teeth. So it's, it's, it's probably a habit that most of us do and just kind of like take for granted, you know, just just brush your teeth. But 
brushing my teeth was an act of self-care. It was this act of investing in myself. And so every day we, you know, I would brush my teeth. This was me saying I'm worthy of self-care. Uh-huh. So just just chipping away at this belief or this this false belief that I was not worthy of self-love or self-care. And then I would start by putting a bottle of water beside my bed. And every morning I would wake up and I would I would drink drink this bottle of water. So starting to hydrate. And and so what we did is we just started to connect some of the things that I was already doing, reframing them as like acts of self-care and investment in myself and so on. And, and I realized that I could nurture myself and create self-love. Now, of course, the changes didn't happen overnight, but this was kind of the start of that. And I realized like I had to get to this place where I wasn't trying to change myself because I hated myself, but I was trying to create change because I valued myself. That's powerful. So we're going to take a quick 30-second break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this story because I am not only relating personally, as I know everybody else will, and that is it. Everybody will relate to this on some level. You are hitting so many hot spots, I think, in our, you know, the way that we think about ourselves. Mm. And it's not just regarding weight. And what you're saying now about self care and self love is a message that the world always needs to hear. I guess the source is sometimes that we hear it, we, we can't relate to necessarily. Does that make sense? Yeah. But you're, you're making it so relatable, and I really appreciate that. So we're just going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to continue talking about how to find the answer to this and any other type of struggle. Carol Graham would like to show you the path from misery to miraculous triumph in her fast-paced memoir, Battered Hope. She relates her determination to succeed as someone who experienced one horrendous nightmare after another. Gang raped and left for dead, loss of a child, husband falsely imprisoned, and cancer. Nothing could break her tenacity or faith. No matter what you face, heartache, loss, suffering or injustice, Carol will illustrate how she became a victor the same way you can. The secret is to never, ever give up hope. Order your copy at Amazon or batteredhope.blogspot.com. I'm excited. (laughs) And I believe that everyone listening is excited because you can relate, as I said at the end of the last segment, And so many different levels, whether it's an area of mental health or physical health, your well-being, your thought processes. I mean, John is hitting it all. And I really appreciate what he is sharing today. And now we're getting to the exciting part. And that is finding the answers to these struggles. So take it away, John. What what this ultimately led to, this this changed how I worked with people. Because would you believe that even in in many of my struggles and these these years of struggle, I was actually coaching people. What's fascinating is because I I really now believe, and I can say this with with utter sincerity, I believe that I'm a world class coach. It took me nearly forty years to actually be comfortable saying those words because most times, if somebody was to say to me that you're you know you're a world class coach, I would immediately dismiss that mm-hmm. because it was it was um different than how I saw myself. And so it's so interesting when we struggle to receive compliments about the gifts that we have because it, uh, it it's not who we see ourselves to be. I had the, the privilege of really working with some, some world-class people 
and and they saw in me. And so when these people see this and they, they start to show you, you actually have this really wonderful, these wonderful gifts and abilities. And I believe every one of us has some kind of gift or ability, but most of us were kind of conditioned to hide it away. Don't, don't let people see that because they'll feel uncomfortable. And, and really, you know, I love, I love helping people unlock their gifts to share with the world. And that's maybe part of what we do in coaching even. Do you know what also, isn't that type uh, a form of uh, false humility? Yes. Oh, you know, yeah. And that, that's, that's really a lie. <laughs> and so we, we, we don't have any self-confidence because we don't want to appear proud. So anyway, mm-hmm, continue. Mm-hmm. But that, I just happened to want to interject that. I thought of that as you were talking. Yeah, I, I love that thought. And maybe I'll just share this. Um, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. In other words, it's, it's not about making your gifts about yourself. And there's something in the human condition, like when we, when we have a gift and we, we share it with other people and we connect to, to people outside of ourselves and we live with purpose and meaning, that's where we really truly find joy and, and vibrant living. And I mean, maybe you can hear it in my voice as I light up thinking about this, like <laughs> when we live in a self-centered way, and, and what's really interesting is when we, when we think less of ourselves, we're still making it about ourselves. It's still self-centered. So when we move away from the self-centeredness, oh, Mm-hmm. Wow. It just, it changes so much for us. So um, I get excited when I think about that as well. Then, then, so this really got me interested in, so because nutrition is important. Um, exercise is really important. But there were other missing pieces here, whether it came to like the mental health and the emotional health. And I realized I need to try to connect the dots and understand this better. And I started getting fascinated by the brain and how, how our brain actually works. So, and I would say like the central tenet of the work I do is really what I would call compassionate awareness and, and compassionate curiosity. So I always like to give people a little, a little picture to kind of illustrate how I view compassion. Now, I, I call compassion empathy 2.0. Empathy is important, the ability to feel others' pain, but if we only have empathy, we'll end up burning ourselves out because mm. we're not help, helping people to move through that. Now, let's just say, Carol, um, maybe, maybe you struggle with, uh, uh, well, I'll pick one, uh, drinking wine. We'll just say drinking wine. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with occasionally drinking wine. Uh, but let's just say I come by randomly your place at, uh, on a Tuesday afternoon and you're halfway through a bottle of wine. You're sitting on the couch <laughs> looking rather frustrated with yourself. Now, if I was to come in, you know, <clears throat> and say, well, Carol, are you dumb? What are you doing? You know better than this. Why are you doing that? Don't do that. And immediately you would start to feel the sense of judgment. Now, when we feel that sense of judgment, it doesn't inspire in us a desire to change, but it inspires a desire to hide our behavior better. Oh, good point. Yeah. So, and that was, that was it for me, right? When I felt judged, when I was working with coaches and they would, they would essentially judge me for my behaviors because they they didn't understand. And I didn't understand why I was doing it. I was like, I'm just going to, but I'm just not going to tell them about this. I'm just going to hide it. What we could say is that creating a sense of judgment for somebody, making them feel judged for their behaviors doesn't help them to move forward. Now, on the other hand, if I was to come in and say, well, you know, you're already halfway through the bottle, you might as well finish the whole thing. Well, that's, that's enabling, right? That's me encouraging you to carry out, continue to carry out a behavior that is unhelpful for you. So for me, compassion is really the middle road. It's not judgment. It's not enabling, but it's a desire to understand. Carol, what's going on? What, what's happened for you? The, the same way that my coach did this uh-huh, for me uh-huh. and started to illustrate this. So we, we get curious about our behaviors. Now, in order to get curious about our behaviors, we do have to kind of track them in a way. We have to somehow create awareness. So 
what I'll say is this about our brain. Our brain is this beautiful, marvelous, and just phenomenal supercomputer. It's, it's amazing. Now, 95 to 98% of our brain function is unconscious. You know, most people listening to this probably haven't been thinking about their heart beating or their breathing until I just said it right now. Now, now you're thinking about <laughs> but, but until that point, it's just been running automatically in the background. Your digestion, not even thinking about it. How you wiggle your fingers, not even thinking about it. It's amazing. So what that means, though, is our brain is very, very selective about what it pays attention to. It's because we have a limited amount of conscious awareness. So our brain will automate as much as possible. It'll create these little shortcuts. For example, if you've ever driven maybe between home and work, if, you, if you've worked at the same place for maybe a number of years, and you drive there or you drive home, and you get home and you think, I don't even remember driving here. How did I get here yes, safely? Yes, yes. That was your brain running a pattern on autopilot. Isn't that incredible? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so this, is, this is the marvelous, wonderful brain that we have. Now, if in our efforts to create change, we are trying to exclusively use conscious brain power, in other words, creating restriction, I call it the dietary straitjacket, we eventually, we eventually fail. Now, it's not that we are a failure. It's that we're not tapping into this other 95 to 98% of our brain power to help us achieve healthy living. And so it's like we need a different approach. So first, we want to take our unhelpful behaviors and bring them into our conscious awareness and look to understand them. Because these behaviors serve a purpose. I'll give you an example. Uh, perhaps you might know someone who's a smoker. Maybe you've been a smoker in the past. We know that smoking is unhealthy and there's a lot of negative health outcomes from smoking. But in the moment, the short-term relief provided by smoking a cigarette outweighs the long-term consequences of the behavior. Right. That's kind of, kind of the hierarchy of our brain. If, if anybody who knows a smoker, and they'll say something like, oh, I just need to smoke right now, scratch under the surface and ask, what are they really saying? So this, when we get curious and we start to try to, instead of saying, well, you're stupid for smoking, we go, let's understand the behavior. What we can maybe say, like, what problem is that behavior solving? What is that behavior giving someone? Because once we understand that, now it's not just about, oh, you're a bad person, you're a dumb person for doing that. It's, ah, this is meeting a need in your brain. Now it's an unhealthy one with long-term consequences that are quite negative, but it's still meeting a need. Now once we gain that level of understanding, now we can start to create change. Here's how I, I think about this. So first of all, it's like, let's, let's create awareness around unhelpful behavior. Now what makes it possible is compassion. because if we don't have compassion, we'll, we'll just judge ourselves for all our perceived negative behaviors right. and again, find ourselves in that. So compassion allows us, I call it wrestle with our demons in the light. You know, just, just bring them into the light and let's look to understand them. And then let's look at, okay, what, we know the sort of the fundamental principles of a healthy lifestyle. You know, it's going to involve nutritious food, regular movement, quality sleep, stress management, hydration, these sorts of principles, you know. And regardless of maybe the, a dietary approach that somebody might take because, you know, there's a million and one these sort of dietary uh -huh, approaches out. Uh -huh. So regardless of it, there are these certain fundamental principles that maybe underpin every dietary approach out there. And it's usually going to be, you know, nutrient-dense whole food most of the time, you know, quality, quality food, quality sleep, stress management, regular activity or exercise, and so on. So if we know that, we go, okay, well, how do we help someone build that as a way of living? Not only that, a way of living right. they don't have to think so much about. Remember that driving from one place to another and not remembering you got there? Well, it's like, could we make healthy living, you know, it's never going to be perfectly automatic, but could we make it like close to? And it's like, well, we can. And that's how we start tapping into the other 95% of our brain that's subconscious or unconscious. We start building habits and skill sets 
that we just do without necessarily needing to think about it. And that's, that's how we make something that lasts. So in the beginning, when we're learning a new skill, we have to consciously practice it, you know? And so we have to somehow track that, yes, I did this today. So we have to consciously remind ourselves to do that behavior. But over time, you know, I was just speaking to a client that I worked with like two years ago. And she said, oh, the other day I just sat down to eat a meal and I realized I was rushing myself. And so I just reminded myself to slow down and take 15 to 20 minutes and just to really enjoy my food. This is two years later. And and so one, one of the things we talk about in, in, in one of the programs that I work with people on is really, you know, enjoying our food, like making, slowing down or eating about appreciating and savoring and enjoying the food that we eat because we're allowed to enjoy food. <laughs> eating is inherently an enjoyable experience. In a nutshell, I guess kind of what I'm saying though is, is we take, if we know like these are the fundamental principles that you need to sort of have in your life if you'd like to achieve a healthy healthy lifestyle, we, we can turn this into a series of skills and habits and behaviors to practice until they become relatively automatic. And so I almost view myself like, well, I joke with my clients. I say I'm a tour guide, but I'm not a Sherpa. Uh, in this, like for those who might not know, a Sherpa is uh, these these amazing human beings that live in, in and around the Himalayan mountains. And then when climbers go to, say, scale Mount Everest, these Sherpas who are so accustomed to living at high altitude, they'll carry their backpack for them. But I think in the coaching context, if I was to carry somebody else's backpack, that's very disempowering. Now, for starters, as a coach, like if I was trying to carry everyone's backpack, I'd just be buried under backpacks and I couldn't move. <laughs> but on top of that, that's me suggesting, subconsciously or not, that you're not able to do this. Let me do it for you. And and really what we want to do is respect each person's individual autonomy and, self, and cultivate a sense of self-efficacy. Because someone might work with me for three months, six years, even I've had people work with me for two or three years. But at some point in time, our time together is going to finish. I want them to be able to continue on and not, not like need me in order to be successful. I want to, I want to, I say I want to create referral business, not repeat business. That's just like the way we train our kids. So many yeah. parents do everything for their kids and then they wonder why the kids can't do anything. Yeah, that's, that's a great, <laughs> I, as the parent of a toddler, I think that's a, a great, <laughs> great bit of advice here. Um, <laughs> watching my little fella and so many times I want to reach out and help him. Because in my yes, head, I'm like, oh, I yes, could just, this yes. is easier if I just do it for him. But I'm like, no, no, let him figure it out. Like, obviously, if he's going to really hurt himself, I'll stop. It. But if he's going to have a little bumper and knock, and I figure, you know, it won't be too serious, I'll, I'll, I'll let him get That's that right. bumper and knock and, and learn. Now, what do you have available for the audience at this point? I know that oh, yeah. your, your book is coming up, and we'll yeah. talk about that in a second. Or you can, you know, j but first of all, just share what you have to offer the audience now and then tell us yeah. a little bit about your book. Yeah. Well, I guess I do, I do have a little ebook um, and it's called Crush Your Cravings. And so I'd be happy to, to, to share that with folks. Um, and we can put the link in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, okay. So, so people can just, you can just enter your name and your email address and I'll send you a copy of um, Crush Your Cravings. It's a short ebook that I wrote just because most people struggle with sort of emotional regulation around food essentially and cravings and so on. And so I wrote this book to give people, this little ebook um, to give people an idea how they can navigate that. And if you, if you, if you go to my website, which is freedomnutritioncoach.com, um, you'll also see there that I do have a couple of seven day challenges. And the most popular one is my seven day and emotional eating challenge. Huh. And it guides you each day through an exercise connected to emotional eating to help you develop a healthier relationship with food. 
So it's really neat. I did mention a book, and at the time of recording this, I haven't yet finished it, um, but I am writing a book called The Missing Piece. It's maybe part memoir, part, uh, I don't know, part guide, if you will. Uh, it's still taking shape, but it, it, it'll be mid-2023 when it's uh, when it's released. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited for that. And it's a little bit more detail about my own story, my own journey, and then how I've turned this into a way of living and how I use use that to help guide other people. Perfect, and we'll look forward to that and certainly share that when it is released. So yeah. in, in summary, John, what would you like to say as a word of encouragement, challenge? Mm. What would you like to add? I would say compassionate awareness is the start of transformational change. In other words, to be, uh, you have to become a new person, but to become that new person, it starts with becoming aware of your current behavior, where exactly you are, but doing it through the lens of compassion so that you're free from judgment and you can look to understand. And that's where we can really truly create powerful change. And say that one more time. Compassionate awareness. Compassionate awareness is the beginning of transformational change. Very well stated. Thank you. And thank you so much for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. And I think this, in particular, when it comes to weight loss, is a place where many people have given up hope. And they just want to throw their hands up in the air and say, what's the, what's the use? I know you've <laughs> yeah. been there. Sure so, have. This is exciting because throughout this show today, you have touched on so many areas that many people can relate, not just in the area of weight loss. So I thank you again, John, for being on Never, Ever, Ever Give Up Hope. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Never, Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.